0: Hi, it's Dan here, and I wanted to let you know that this is a very special episode of the show. Some glimpses from my chats with four previous guests. You'll hear about 10 minutes of each guest's 60-plus minute conversation, which will give you a small idea of the many topics that we covered. Also, you can listen to the entire conversation at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes Revealing Chats with Canada's Retro Music Makers. Enjoy. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, a violinist and multifaceted career entertainer and musician, Lenny Solomon. Lenny's well-known for his successful group, Miles and Lenny, who had some commercial success in the 1970s. My dad
1: was the principal violist of the Toronto Symphony for over 40 years. Wow. And uh, my sister is a talented musician, Maribeth, in her own right. Nice. Uh, So we grew up in a a, very musical, cultured
0: atmosphere. Yeah. Well, good. So then you went out in the in the scene and you got into some bands and you started playing. I mean, you didn't go down the sort of classical route that you would typically go down playing piano and, and with your dad in the Toronto Symphony, you kind of branched out from there.
1: I did branch out in my teens, but until then I was, uh, you know, very much into the uh, more uh, traditional classical approach. And then I started jamming uh, in the basement with my friends, and one of my friends was Miles Cohen, and uh, we uh, seemed to really hit it off together and yeah. uh, uh, started doing some local shows and uh, got an audience and started generating some fans. And um, we were very lucky to uh, be in the right place at the right time on a number of
0: occasions. So you formed in 69, and then I guess you, you just started doing lots of live shows, and then by '72, you got signed with GRT, and you and you released the single "Time to Know Your Friends." Right, yeah. that was our first record, and um, I'll never
1: forget driving. Uh, in my My first car was a Beetle, yeah. W Beetle, and I the, the Chum FM put it on, and I had to pull over. And uh, you know, it's quite a thing to hear your record on the radio for the first time. Violin is is really where where i'm at and you know at the time violin in any sort of pop atmosphere was really unique let alone the electric violin with sound effects and uh, yeah. uh you know multi-effects that i i brought to the stage i felt like i was sort of on the cutting edge now there are so many great jazz and pop violinists electric yeah. violinists
0: it's uh, really great to see how that genre has blossomed So, the album was real strong. I mean, it was so the first album was self titled Miles and Lenny 1975. And uh, where was that recorded?
1: That was recorded at
0: Eastern Sound on
1: uh, Yorkville. um, And that was a brilliant studio that so many incredible people came through Gordon Lightfoot, Anne Murray, to name some Canadian acts. Actually, we were recording um, one afternoon when none other than Mick Jagger walked in. And uh, he wanted to hear the, the control room studio. So we put Miles and Lenny on for him and uh, we really hit it off. He, he respected us as musicians, which I thought was a great compliment. And oh, cool. uh, we got to hang out for the day with him and we went, um, he invited us back to his, uh, um, his Windsor arm his Windsor arm suite. And yeah. um, we met his wife at that time, Bianca Jagger, yeah. And just had a great evening. It was just such a thrill to, uh, it was a bit gobsmacked uh, over yeah, the yeah. The producer of Miles and Lenny for uh, all our recordings was Mickey Irby. Rest in peace. Mickey just yeah. uh, passed on a few months ago. A brilliant composer, orchestrator, producer, just was consummate musician. Yeah, And, his wife, my sister, Maribeth. Um, oh, okay. they co-produced both miles and Lenny albums. Oh, and, wow. Um, yeah.
0: Okay. Well, that's neat because the, the production's great. And then, uh, I'm just curious about that because it, it's got, Yeah, you know, I mean, you want some continuity, I guess some, some people switch around with their producers and, or, or some people are assigned, right? Like a bunch of people were assigned a staff producer, but, uh, in your case, did you pick him or was it, um, you know, we
1: were, um, they sort of managed and produced miles and Lenny and um, approached the record companies uh, on our behalf. So they,
0: they presented miles and Lenny to various records. Oh, so that was part of the package then with them producing it. Yeah, I got you. Okay. Well, cool. So then can you give it all to me? Really strong hook. Obviously I remember that song very well and, and it sounds like there's a flange on the guitar there and, and there's lots of percussion in there. Congas, nice harmonies. Yeah, and the
1: background vocals I thought were very impressive, and uh, uh, Mickey did a great job uh, writing that vocal arrangement, and uh, it was it was an amazing record. Uh, I got to play uh, a seventeenth century Nicholas Amati viola on oh. the backing track. Nice. Uh, uh, of that record as well. There's a uh, multi-layered violins and uh, yeah. this viola as well. So did they
0: just bring that in, like for the studio gig? With- no, it was my dad and I. Bo- dad's and I oh, borrowed I it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, super cool. So, did you use a studio band as opposed to like your live playing band? Yeah, we our live be- uh, playing
1: band was uh, the studio band as well, which okay. included Brian Barlow on drums actually, um you know now that I think of it, um, we did pick up musicians after we recorded it because Mickey uh, played bass on on those bed tracks as well okay keyboards you know we had uh, for the second album we had Doug Riley play on a couple of tracks and I don't know if your audience is speaking speaking of retro and vintage um, Doug Riley along with Mickey Irby, uh, uh doug Doug has passed on as well but Okay, the legacy of music that he leaves behind. Uh, one of the great Canadian, well, one of the great musicians of the world. Um,
0: I think back now, and I had a chance to work with Doug uh, so many times. I wondered about that because sometimes, you know, the live band is cool and everything, but you get in the studio and especially a producer go, you know, I'd like to bring someone else in to, to play the bass part. Or, you know, you've watched uh, the, the, the Wrecking Crew, for example, where... Sure I mean, a, lot, a lot of the musicians were just the studio cats are just real good and they know what to do and they're fast and and really good right so I just right. wondered I, how much of that was
1: i actually i met Carol Kay once um, oh, nice. uh, from the wrecking crew and um we uh we showed up at a jam session together in l a and she was just the most amazing uh kind uh and talented uh you know and here was the here was the person who played bass on good vibrations among yeah. others, you know, so heavy. Yeah, that's cool. But yeah, it's so cool. nice. And yeah. she really, she gave me some hints uh, yeah. about how to uh, exist in the music business. And that was really
0: awesome. Yeah. So then speaking of that first album, I hear lots of female voices. Is that right? Did you have some female back vocals in there? Yeah,
1: that's that's what I was referring to, Mickey writing the vocal arrangements for uh, for a number of tunes. Which featured, th- well, featured, were backing was three
0: uh, female voices. Okay. That, that makes sense. I was listening to it going, okay, that's could be guys singing falsetto, but it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like full-on female voices. The production
1: was so uh, fantastic that a lot of people were surprised that we were a Canadian group. Hmm. Uh, they just assumed that uh, we were uh, from another place.
0: Yeah. And then I listened to a bunch of the songs and I'd heard some of them before, not, not the deep album cuts, but obviously the, the hits and the like, don't come crying to me. that has got almost a Celtic feel to it. It's bouncy. And then you got the, the double lead voices. So there's two voices singing. Was that right? You you didn't sing in that band though. No,
1: I, I, I sure didn't. We wouldn't be here today if I was. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't Um, your skill set. You know, at that time it was um, very fashionable to double track your voices uh, very, it was an English sound of production that uh, we were going for, sort of a gentle giant, Peter Gabriel. Yeah, nice. um, that sort of English yeah.
0: double tracking was very popular at the time.
2: Oh yeah, and it, and it
0: works. It's uh, it gives you that thicker sort of sound. If you listen carefully, probably the the undiscerning listener probably wouldn't notice it, other than sounds a, bit a little thicker, maybe. Right. If you listen closely, you can hear it. Right. Right, right. Um, it, it always uh, amazed me that uh, Paul
1: McCartney and John Lennon sang unison together, and you couldn't really tell who was singing
0: and who was yeah. the lead vocal in that, in one tune or another. It was a yeah, good Yeah, amazing. Eh? The other thing that that seems that struck me about the album is you, you typically play the, the theme on the violin, right? So you do the intro or the theme. Right. And then, uh, so like in Take Me Back, you got a nice acoustic intro, and then the violin plays the theme, then the harmonies come in. Um, Louisiana is almost kind of a hillbilly feel, you know, in a sense. I did not know how else to, to describe right. it, but kind of, and yeah, it's good. In the sky, bouncy, good harmonies, you know, just a, a good thematic album, I guess is what I would say that it's consistent, but it's different.
1: We were lucky to, uh, lucky. We, uh, we got some notice, uh, from the Junos winning the, uh, group, uh, album, Best New Group, I think, was the title of the most promising group in
0: 1976, right? Yeah, We're up against heart for that one. (laughs) Oh. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, Keith Brown. He was a tour manager throughout much of the 70s with Donald K. Donald and later became an executive at Aquarius Records. Having worked closely with many of the top Canadian bands, as well as bands from around the world on their trips to Canada, Keith has an insider's perspective that is rich with history and memories. We'll get some other insights as well about the biz from his book, uh, Truly Unfamous. So thanks for joining me today, Keith. How are you?
3: It's a pleasure, Dan.
0: I'm doing fine. Well good, yeah, I, I read your book and uh, I must say it was, uh, it was interesting page by page. you know some books have uh, some, some dull spots. There wasn't any in your book. I, I was interested in the whole thing and I, I think you you hit on some real uh, key points and highlights and, and stuff that you know brought back some memories for me and, and filled in some holes for me too. So uh, you know, appreciate your writing. It's called Truly Unfamous for any of our listeners if you want to go to it. I think you've got trulyunfamous.com. you've got uh, some presence on Facebook as well for people so they can go and read it, and I highly recommend it.
3: Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I tried to keep the book uh, moving fast. It's not meant to be a scholarly piece. It's basically about the fun that I had uh, back in the 70s. I mean, I I was thinking about what was I doing 50 years ago when I started working on this book and realized that that was uh, a great time in my life and a very distinct one, too, because the concert business is much different from the record business where I wound up spending most of my career.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting. What struck me right off the bat was the early stuff. You said your, your mother had a love for music and she kind of translated that to you. And And music is kind of a bug that you catch, right? And it just never goes away. It just touches you at the deepest level and kind of draws you in. And that that struck me. And then the other thing that struck me was you said you, you just didn't want an, at, you wanted an atypical kind of a job. You didn't want the grind of a job, right? So those two things, I can really relate to those two things.
3: Well, they say that if you find something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And that was definitely what I was trying to do.
0: And then you you just uh, so I guess by happenstance you were kind of drawn to it like a moth to a, a flame sort of thing and then uh, I guess you you describe in there one day you're a bass player in the Battle of the Bands. and then the next next day it seems like you're you're working for Donald K. Donald. you're putting together all these these uh, events and tours and stuff.
3: Yeah, I mean, I was a college student um, when I got this first job from Donald, which wasn't doing concerts initially. No. Uh, and it's true. I got the job because our, our, our group entered a battle of the bands. And Donald, being the uh, wily promoter that he was, discovered he could sell these battles to promoters. And he didn't have to pay the talent because they were competing for a prize. There you go. So yeah. he kept adding new, new levels to the contest. And it, w- it should have been like, I don't know, an eight-week contest wound up going on for almost a year and a half. <laughs> and by the end of it, uh, there was only two groups that had started at the beginning. There was us, we were all college students who weren't ready to, you know, drop out and hit the road. And there was another group that were all, um, uh, they lived in the Ganawagi Reserve, south of Montreal, Mohawk. The two of us made it all the way to the finals. We won, and lo and behold, um, the prize, which was oh, $5,000 in gigs, would only materialize six months later, so Donald offered me a job as working in a bar that he owned, a music club. And that was the beginning of everything for me.
0: Yeah. So another thing that struck me is, you know, Donald K. Donald had this name. I don't know. It was this iconic sort of name with a mystique about it. I don't know what that was. I guess that's what you always try to do when you have a brand. You want to have this brand that sort of precedes, you know, the the, the history precedes the the name so that people have this mystique about that name. What, What was it about the Donald K. Donald name that, that created that tradition?
3: Well, Donald, um, he he had a good friend named Ted Blackman, who is known to people in the sports world, he used to be a sports commentator. And Ted wanted Donald's set of golf clubs, and Donald wanted Ted's a mobile DJ setup. So mm-hmm. they, they made a switch, and Donald became a DJ who would play high schools. Okay. And his inspiration for Donald K. Donald was a guy named Murray the K, okay. uh, who was a radio DJ, but he was also a promoter. Murray the K used to put on these uh, caravans with all kinds of top 40 uh, hit artists who would come on and do two songs on each show, but they do three shows a day. So Donald loved that whole idea. And uh, that's where the Donald K. Donald idea came from. But he, he also discovered that if he became a promoter and it, no, first of all, if he became an agent rather than just him doing one show a night, he could be baking money on um, 20 shows a night. Right. In yeah. fact, as a promoter, eventually he got to the point where we would be doing several shows a night somewhere in Canada almost every night of the year
0: interesting yeah and so that i guess the mystique sort of grows out of that just because of your success right that kind of speaks for itself
3: yeah mystique but also with in donald's case it's the razzle dazzle he's just like murray the k donald the k in fact he actually changed his name his name is donald ross tarleton but now it's donald k tarleton he had it legally legally changed so that's dedication for you
0: yeah And is he still with us? Is he?
3: Yes, um, he's not in the best of health. He's had Parkinson's disease now for about eight years, but he's he's still, I talk to him every, at least every couple of weeks, and he's in good spirits.
0: Okay, so you remain friends with him and you consider him a friend? Oh, for sure. Yeah, good. Well, no, that's nice to hear because, uh, you know, a lot of times you bounce off people in the music business or, or things go sour and and you just never know, right? But the way that you talk about him in the book is just fairly affectionate. I mean, he was a, obviously an animated kind of a guy and you obviously had an affection for him. For sure.
3: Him and his partner, Terry. I mean, yeah. to get serious for just a second, I, I find that a lot of times when things don't go well in the music business or the record business in particular, Artists have a tendency to want to blame other people. And, uh, you know, I've seen Donald and Terry and a lot of other business people in the Canadian music industry uh, get, you know, chastised by artists who have a a pretty good platform from which to express their opinions. Mm -hmm. But at at the end of the day, I I certainly didn't feel like uh, he ever did me any wrong. And I I know that he, he also cared a lot about the artists. And the really big artists generally love Donald, it's yeah. And when people's careers don't go well, well, quite often there's a lot of reasons involved.
0: Yeah, that's a, a fair point. And the other thing, too, when you're in the trenches, I mean, all the stuff you described through the book, I mean, you know, it sounds glamorous in some respects, but I've, I've been on tours and stuff, and it's hard, and it's a grind. And you're in the trenches together, and you're fighting all the things that come up. So you, there's a bonding that takes place in that as well, right?
3: All for sure. I mean, when you're touring on the road, um, the the band and and it, to almost a greater extent, the crew. And sometimes even the opening act, they all get into this mentality of um, we're all in this together. I don't want to say we're like warriors in a, in a war, but you do have a real sense of um, we're we doing it for each other. Because, I mean, yeah. if you've got a day that run, your average day lasts 16, 18 hours. Yeah. And the rest of the time you can sleep. Um, <laughs> and if you were just doing it for yourself, you probably would give up after I don't know how long, a year – Uh, But if you do it for the other people, that's why you you don't want to let the other people down. And, and, uh, that I, the the metaphor of being in the trenches is a good one because you really do develop an esprit
0: yeah no that's a, that's a good point and it comes out in the because you share a lot of stuff I mean there's a lot of funny stuff in there but there's also a lot of stuff about you know doing your reconciliations at the end of concerts and stuff and counting the the beer soaked <laughs> money or whatever it happens <laughs> to be I mean you know th- those are the hard parts and you can you can be up till 3 in the morning trying to get the numbers to make sense or whatever you you, you mentioned that a couple times oh time, yeah well
3: Norman Perry was a, a he was a brilliant young, he was younger than us he, uh, he, he was a runner originally when I came into Donald K Donald is still a teenager but he was adamant and i remember going off on a tour with him where he was supposed to be my assistant and poor norman he'd be sitting there every night till three o'clock in the morning trying to balance to the penny and my philosophy was count it once carefully stick it in a bag lock the bag and don't look at it again until the end of the tour (laughs) but uh no it just there's that and the other thing too is that in, in the in the book it's tempting to want to talk about the famous people, but honestly, what made that decade so special for me was everybody—the uh, fans, yeah. the arena managers, the roadies, the opening acts, um, uh, the headliners were just a part of it. And when I yeah. w- when I wrote the book, I was a bit concerned that, you know, I didn't say enough about the people who would have, let's say, larger egos. Yeah. Uh, but I was very gratified in that, in that respect. I mean, the guys in the Stampeders didn't mind at all that I talked a lot about their crew, that I talked a lot about their opening acts, and a lot about yeah. the, uh, the crazy things that would happen on the road that really didn't, wasn't because of them, it just happened because they were there. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's that's right, and I think also when you're writing a book like you are, and and you know, of course, I've talked to to Kim Burley and the guys in in the Stampeders and whatever, but they're they're at a reflective time in life too, right? Like all that all that stuff is is well in the past, and you're just kind of reflecting on it now. And, and there's a lot of a lot of laughs and a lot of good stuff that happened, right? For sure. And your book is is quite reflective I found you know that you're looking back It you're not you're not writing it from being in the heat of the battle so to speak you're writing it from someone who said it was what it was it is what it is and it was it was cool.
3: Well I cover a lot of the Canadian bands kind of very uh I would say superficially because I'd only do even a band like Chilliwack who I might have toured with six different times they were only just a couple of weeks at a time yeah but there was two acts in particular, April 1 and Stan Peters, that I, I did about 450 shows with Stan Peters.
0: Wow. And
3: uh, well over 200 with April 1. Plus, I worked in their management office when I wasn't on the road. So I saw yeah. their 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 careers develop from kind of an, an inside view. Because of that, I, I tend to look at the, the acts that I only dealt with superficially very positively because, I mean, when you're on the road with a band – uh, that's doing well enough to be on the road, touring from coast to coast. Uh, every night's a celebration. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the night, people go home with their T-shirts and smiles on their faces. And yeah. uh, and it's, it's just a really good time. Uh, whereas when you get really into the inner workings of a band, you see kind of the rise and fall. There's a real drama yeah. uh, that, that unfolds over the years.
0: Today, I'm very honoured to have as my guests Frank Troiano. He's the brother of the legendary Canadian guitarist Dominic Troiano and author Mark Doble. Uh, Together, they have written a book on Dom's incredible musical journey, and we'll get some other insights as well about Dom's life. So thanks for joining me today, Frank and Mark. How are you?
4: Great, Dan. Thanks for having us.
0: Good. Well, I appreciate it. I'm happy to have you on. And of course, uh, you've written a book about uh, Dominic's life entitled Dominic Troiano, His Life and Music. And that's available, from what I understand, on DominicTroiano.ca, which is the website that you've set up for this? Correct. I wanted to ask you, why and how did this come about? Like, you want to do an official sort of chronicle of of Dom's life and his work?
4: Yes, Dan. um, In March of 2020, as the pandemic started, I looked at the calendar and I saw that the 15th anniversary of my brother's death was coming up in May of of, uh, 2020. And I felt a little bit guilty that I hadn't put together, uh, you know, or hadn't started doing a book. I've thought about it a few times and it was a bit overwhelming. And um, anyhow, I sent out an email to two or three hundred of my uh, brothers, friends, family, and uh, musical associates. And within a week, I had about a dozen responses. I was asking for uh, some kind of a testimonial or tribute to him oh, wow. and, and I had mentioned in an email that I was going I was thinking of writing a book. Yeah. And I had a great, you know, pretty good response. And then uh, Mark reached out to me about a week, ten days uh, after and said, "Would you like me to uh, join in and be of assistance uh, in writing you know co-writing the book?" Yeah, And I, I welcomed uh, I had already talked to Mark in the past. And of course, I welcomed him uh, because it was going to be a bit too much for me to do on my own. And uh, I became more the front man asking for uh, tributes, doing interviews. And Mark was sort of chronicling and helping put it together in in a logical format. Uh, Mark, uh, why don't you join in? It was kind of an
5: interesting uh, confluence in March of 2020. Frank and I had had a coffee about, oh, probably three years prior to that, shortly after I retired from my day job. And um, I, I, had, I had proposed to Frank that uh, I, I was interested in writing uh, a biography of Dominic. And I actually had a very short... Um, outline of what the book would, would look like. And then of course, um, the, the, the best laid plans got sort of set aside as, um, I, I was called back on a, on a contract. My employer made an offer that I couldn't refuse. Mm. So I went back to work for about 18 months. And then of course, promptly forgot about, uh, my conversation with Frank. So I, interesting in, in before March, about uh, shortly after Christmas, uh, in, in January of twenty. 20 I, I was starting to feel guilty as well because you know Frank and I had had this conversation about it and I'd just never gotten around to it and as as a, a fellow author once said to me he said mark you're going to run into a hundred people that are working on a book uh, maybe two of those people will actually finish it and I was a I was afraid that that was going to happen to me and then Frank contacted me in in march and we 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 both sort of had this this nagging um feeling in the back of our minds that we needed to get this done and um so it it happened to be the the you know the start of the pandemic we were self-isolating we were stuck in our houses with nothing else to do but write a book mm-hmm. and of course uh, all of the people that frank reached out to and i mean he reached out to over two hundred. Um, former colleagues, uh, family members, uh, fans, friends, um, all of whom uh, knew Dominic and asking for their recollections and experiences. Of course, all of those people, they they were all self-isolating wherever they were in the world as well. So they had nothing better to do than to respond to Frank. And we had some absolutely wonderful submissions from some great people. Ultimately, I think we had something like 185 uh, different submitters or interviewees that uh, we, we either talked to or received written submissions from to put the book together and, it, and we, we started to see common threads from people that were writing and their their fond recollections. Dominic Troiano was a man who had a profound influence on his his fellow musicians, but he was also dearly loved and highly regarded um, by pretty much everybody that he, he came into contact with. And those people, even 15 years after his passing were eager to, to share their recollections, which I think speaks, speaks volumes and, and, and just putting all of that together. It was, it was an incredibly rewarding process for me.
0: And I guess Frank, you were in the business as well. You you tour managed, so you were an integral part of that. You weren't. This wasn't just kind of a, a, a peripheral thing, right? You were involved in Dom's
4: career quite a bit. I started out as a 13 year old in 1962, carrying my brother's guitar <laughs> to, to the Eaton Auditorium. Uh, he was uh, performing with Robbie Lane and the Disciples, yep. and we opened for uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers. Nice. I carried the guitar in and I got I was absolutely baptized and just uh, immersed in that whole scene and it it was a, it was unbelievable I was I, it was so such an exciting night for me being such a youngster mm-hmm. and from there that just set the, my course of like becoming a roadie, a road manager and you know an assistant manager to my brother. For many years.
0: Yeah, good. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear that because that gives you an insight that you otherwise wouldn't have had, right? You were there at the gigs and and there in, in the process too.
5: Here's the thing, Dan, um, and I I've observed this um Dominic was really close to his family. Even when his family was back in Toronto and Dominic was residing in Los Angeles for a, a number of years, um, they still remained very close. And um, Frank, of course, talks about carrying uh, uh, Dominic's equipment to to gigs and this kind of thing. But more than that, um, Dominic routinely phoned home um, to, to talk to his family and, and Frank included, um, to you know, share his feelings about what he was going through, what he was thinking about doing, um, whether to join this band or not join this band, um, the, what the next step would be. Dominic. Would have Frank come down to uh, to Los Angeles for 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 three or four weeks at a time, just to to spend time with him, to sort of hang around with him when when uh, Dominic would be Dominic might be recording, he might be doing some gigs, they might just be uh, rehearsing, um, and uh, and Frank was allowed to to be there to tag along, and and uh, I, I mean Dominic put him to work and everything, but he, he would he would he they had a close. Bond. I, 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 there's there's a story in the book about about um, uh, Dominic and the James Gang, and um, the James Gang was playing Carnegie Hall, and he he had Frank come down to New York City for the weekend, and uh, took him around New York City, but had him at the show and at the concert, and he involved his family um, in in a lot of his uh, a lot of his his his, uh, his exploits. And uh, that was important to him. You know, you read uh, lots of rock and roll biographies about rock stars that they maybe were kicked out of the house or they were out on the street, they came out of a broken home or uh, they they got into, you know, into all kinds of different uh, problems. That was not Dominic Troiano. Dominic Troiano was, was close to his family. His family supported him 100% from the time he, he basically told his dad that, no, he wasn't going to go to university. He was going to be a professional musician. And although that wasn't, wasn't his dad's choice for him, his mom and dad and brother and sister supported Dominic all the way. And so they remained close and because of that, we had some perspectives that we can share in the book that only Frank can give. And uh it was a it was a unique uh relationship, but it was uh it was a very special relationship.
0: Today I'm very honored to have as my guest Bob Buckley. Bob is a very well-known composer, arranger, performer, producer, recording artist and conductor. And you were originally from the West Coast? Um,
2: Yeah, sort of. I was born in England, um, but my family immigrated over here when I was 10 years old. So I've spent most of my life here. No, I grew up in in England um, when it it was post-war and there was rationing. And the whole country was sort of very very black and white. It was very much like being in a black and white movie. And you see the movies from that era. And Mm. and it was sort of very drab. So coming yep. to Canada was sort of like all of a sudden life was in color.
0: <laughs> so musically, you've been composing since you were a little kid. I guess there was some family influence there. You started taking lessons when you were young and just had an affinity for it?
2: Um, you know, I've never taken lessons in anything. Um, okay. it was, I just had uh, an intense curiosity. Um, mm-hmm. So when I was really little, um, my brother was six years older than me, and he's the one that got the piano lessons. Mm. Um, so I used to, um, stand outside the door where he was getting his lessons and he didn't like me playing his piano. So, (laughs)
0: um,
2: and when he would leave, I would run in and, and practice his lessons. And so I sort of learned, um, through a door. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but you know, immediately, um, I started writing little melodies and stuff. This is when I was, you know, eight, nine years old. Yeah. Um, yeah. I started writing little melodies and stuff like that. And I think I wrote my first sort of melody, complete melody when I was about eight or something like that. Uh, I've just always had an intense curiosity and I started to play, you know, as most kids, a lot of musicians do started playing in the high school band. Um, And, um, it was, you know, and I was realizing that everybody in the band was playing different parts and some people were yeah. playing low and some people were playing high. And and my curiosity was such that I, I tried to figure out why, like, how did that, how did, how was that all put together? Mm-hmm. And so um, I went to the library here in Vancouver and got out a bunch of orchestral scores and recordings and, and basically taught myself orchestration and how to write for orchestra and all of that when I was, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, just because I was just intensely curious. With chords or with sight reading music, gradually you progress in your ability to be able to read more and more complex rhythms and things like that. And also on your instruments, you, you get to um, the more you hear other people play, the more you feel like exactly how much intensity you need to give a note or if you're playing a wind instrument how much breath to give a note to get to get this sort of sound that you're looking for yeah. and it, it really is it's about being curious um, but keeping your ears open um, and just being open to whatever's going on around you when i had my first rock and roll band we were fresh you know a couple of guys were fresh out of university uh, music school and stuff like that and uh, we learned and expanded our vocabulary, the four of us being in a band together and going out and playing and touring around BC in the middle of winter. And, uh, you know, it was very much, we became very much a family and individually our curiosity for different kinds of music and different tunings and all that just sort of uh, became part of of our music. When I started playing in rock and roll bands, which was like late 60s, early 70s, music was a lot broader in its concept i mean the band that i played in was sort of a fusion band almost i mean mm-hmm. we played rock but there were there were classical orchestral elements in there there were jazz elements in there mm-hmm. um, and then you had other bands that were sort of folk based or you know or more heavy heavy rock based and but it all existed in the same community and they we would be on the stage together you know playing playing rock concerts and stuff yeah. like that two bands that were quite different in in their um, and what they were doing.
0: What was your original aspiration like when you were I don't know 15 years old and you said I want to do that what was that?
2: Well that at 15 that was to be an orchestral composer I mean I had just I had discovered the Rite of Spring by Stravinsky and I discovered Bartok and various other sort of um, experimental orchestral composers and and found that world very exciting and invigorating. Okay. Um, and then <laughs> and then I got lured by rock and roll. Oh, so, okay. so really my dream when I started my first band was to combine orca- contemporary uh, orchestral music with rock and roll music. And so my first band was called Spring. And we, I wrote this big, long, it was about an hour-long piece for um, rock and roll band and symphony orchestra. And we performed it twice with the vancouver symphony and once with the edmonton symphony um and it was you know symphony orchestras at the time were looking at ways of getting young people into the audience because the 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 audience of symphony um was getting older and older and older and dying off basically so they were looking at ways of expanding so we did those two concerts and i thought well we're on our way i mean it was early days for that first band i thought we're on our way we're gonna tour all across Canada. We'll play with symphony orchestras. Hopefully this will open up. We can tour the United States. We can tour Mm -hmm. Europe. Um, And none of that happened. It just was way, way, way too expensive, Yeah. Um, you know, uh, to tour us with 80 symphony musicians to play concerts and expect to make it anyway. So what happened with that band is we we just um, started to play sort of orchestral rock music. I mean, later on, you know, Yes and Emerson Lake and Palmer, they started doing the same thing, but we were doing that uh, quite a bit ahead of when they were mm. doing that. So m- uh, longer music forms, we, w- we would play music forms that were 20 and twi- 25 minutes long that went through uh-huh. all sorts of different uh, avenues of, uh, you know, between orchestral and jazz and all the rest of it. And, yeah. and it was really fun and audiences loved it, but music changed, you know, and more and more. Um, people were not interested in that, and more and more people wanted either cover bands or, you know, three four minute pop tunes.
0: Yeah. So you've reinvented yourself a few times then, right? Just or, or took a career shift. Yeah. Or, you
2: know. Yeah. I mean that band was was great because we warmed up. We we were the. The warm-up band for The Who when they came to town for Led Zeppelin. We played with Led Zeppelin before they got famous. They were touring out of the the back of a a station wagon. Um, And we played with, you know, Big Brother and the whole Janis Joplin. I mean, we played with a lot of major bands and played rock concerts with a lot of major bands. So, you know, we got to be part of that world a little bit. And when that folded, I... um, I got together with a guitar player named David Sinclair, who's not with us anymore, but just an amazing guitar player and really wonderful singer. Um, and we decided that we were going to form a band, so we formed a band called Straight Lines, which became Straight yeah. Lines.
0: You had Jeff Air in the band, I guess, two playing bass, you er, playing drums. You had a few different uh, guys in and out of Straight Lines, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. It was it was the the lineup changed quite a bit. We all it was always David and I and Peter Clark. Uh, doing the vocals I mean the three of us were sort of always in the band we went through a few different drummers there was actually even a point where we had two drummers okay (laughs) Um, and uh, and we went in uh, to do one album and and the first drummer would go in and sit down and set up his drums and we play through the tune and it sort of didn't work and the second drummer would go in and set up his drums and we'd play through and it sort of didn't work so even though we had two drummers we actually ended up getting jim valance oh. to come in and play drums on the actual album yeah um and so it, it was it was bizarre and it wasn't that they were bad drummers at all it's just that they weren't really used to playing in a studio
0: yeah. and
2: jim had you know uh jim had spent many many hours as a studio drummer so yeah. he could come in and do what we wanted like right away
0: the straight lines did really well i mean you guys in letting go was that you playing piano you played piano yeah that? and that yeah.
2: piano was recorded in england um oh. and it was the same piano that paul mccartney used on hey
0: jude oh wow
2: yeah yeah oh, I had no it was in trident studios it was a um, a large yamaha grand and oh. what they had done is they'd slightly hardened the hammers um to give it a a, just a a brighter sound um it's quite an interesting piano to play and i went in there and the engineer was the same engineer that um recorded hunky dory um Mm. uh, david bowie and he um put i think he must have used nine or ten microphones on the piano to get the wow. sound that we got yeah it was pretty 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 amazing oh, that's,
0: so who bankrolled all that you had a record deal that, that
2: yeah we had a record there. deal by then and yeah. uh yeah you know back then it was cheaper to go to england and record strings uh and to put strings on a, a record than it was to do it in vancouver oh. that's not definitely not true anymore but it's true then and um i i loved the string sound on the Hunky Dory album. I thought it was the best string sound I ever heard. And I, and I, so I looked on the album cover and discovered it was recorded at Trident Studios in London. Um, so that was, you know, oh. just, I kept whining until they let me go and do it. Yeah. Interesting.
0: Um, so you didn't record the whole album over there. That's what I was confused by No, just, by that.
2: just, just the sweetening, just the piano, um, the, the acoustic piano and the strings
0: and then who was singing on? Who sang on on letting go?
2: Letting go was Peter Clark, our our vocalist. Okay. He he was our vocalist um, through straight lines, basically. Yeah. I mean, we had other guys sing on different tracks, but Peter was the main singer.
0: And and the production's great. I mean, it's uh, th- like the production, as they say, doesn't get in the way of the the music, but it sounds really really good. And it was uh, obviously uh, you got lots of airplay with it, and it sounds like heavier. Sort of, I was trying to categorize it in my mind, and I was thinking it's intelligent, heavier rock pop
2: yeah it was it was amazing i it was it, what, that whole thing the whole way that that came together was was quite amazing and i thought it turned out really well
0: thanks for checking out these short bits from my much longer conversations with previous liner notes guests don't forget you can listen to each full interview at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms just search for liner notes revealing chats with canada's retro music makers until next time i'm dan Hare.